Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples weekly sermon podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for allowing us to gather today in this place. So we come here because we, we want to worship. And we do that, Lord, through our, our voices in song. And Lord, through our prayer. And Lord, we worship through our study of the word, your word. And so, Lord, I ask for a blessing this morning. I ask for a, a, a tangible presence of your Holy Spirit, even right now, Lord, as we're gathered together in your name. Lord, it would be completely cool if you wanted to rattle these walls with the presence of your spirit today. That would be amazing, Lord. So, Lord, as we open up your word and we go through, uh, we give this time over to you. Lord, I lay myself down at your altar right now to be used as a tool in your hand, Lord. Just create a masterpiece today. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Listen, last week we covered a lot of ground, chapter 25 and 26, uh, in the, the kind of the, the beginning of that, what we call the fourth missionary journey of Paul. Now he's not kind of walking or traveling on his own, but he's being led in chains as a, as a prisoner of Rome, uh, but, but still being used in an incredible way and under incredible circumstances, as we're going to see even today. Um, but he, finally, he's being placed in front of rulers and governors and kings. And last week, you know, he was before Festus and, and King Agrippa. You know, and he, he gives this great presentation of the gospel message through his own testimony. But what's the core? What's the power behind his testimony? It is Jesus. And not just Jesus, but his death and resurrection. And it's, and it's that message that he's saying, and I'm taking to the Jews and I'm taking to the Gentiles. And every time he says that, people want to kill him. He presents it in such an effective way before Agrippa and before Festus that both of them, we looked at, felt convicted. Uh, Festus doesn't know how to deal with it, and so he stands, stands up and he says, Paul, you're out of your mind. All this stuff you're saying, you're learning all your, your book reading, it's made you crazy. You're, you're, you're speaking crazy talk. But we know that he didn't really think that Paul was crazy because he would never send a crazy man off to Caesar under his authority, that would be bad. So he must have been feeling something and not knowing how to deal with that. He's like, I, I hear what you're saying, but I got to stop this because I, I don't know how to deal with it. Agrippa, on the other hand, he says, you know what, Paul? You almost persuaded me. You see, Agrippa had quite a background, uh, a history, uh, uh, an understanding of uh, not just Judaism, but also the, the history and the prophecy that was in the Old Testament. And he would know that there was going to come a Messiah, one that would come to deliver them all. Paul really played on it. He goes, do you believe the prophets, Agrippa? I know you believe the prophets. And Agrippa says, oh, Paul, you almost convinced me almost. And he seemed okay with that because after that, he kind of stood up and they left. And he was like, I'm okay with almost being convinced. But here's the problem. Almost isn't good enough. We don't accept almost in anything, right? We have sayings, almost, you know, almost only counts in horseshoes because you can be close and still get a point, right? But anything else almost doesn't count. Hey, I almost won the lottery. Okay, so I didn't. That's what it means. I didn't win the lottery. <laughs> you know the Buffalo Bills almost won the Super Bowl four years in a row. <laughs> Which means they never won it at any of those times. I'm not bitter. I'm over it. Pray for me. <laughs> Honey, come on, it's time to go. I'm almost ready. <laughs> that means she's not ready. <laughs> almost isn't good enough, is it? Almost, uh, actually, this was a quote that I read by somebody else. Almost is exactly the amount you need to find yourself in hell when it comes to salvation. Almost is exactly the amount you need to find yourself in hell. Almost isn't good enough. Agrippa said, you almost 
persuaded me, but he didn't go all the way. Whatever it was, something was holding him back. It may have been that he was looking out at his life and saying, what will I have to give up if I go along with what it is that you're saying? Because look at all that I have. He's sitting there fully arraigned in, in beautiful clothes with a beautiful sister wife. <laughs> you know, authority and power and position. And maybe he's looking at his life and saying, this is just too much for me to give up for what you're saying, Paul. Is anybody there, was anybody in their pre-saved life in a place where they were like, everything's going good. I, I mean, I don't need anything. I'll tell you honestly, before my wife and I were born again, we were pretty good. I mean, we both had jobs. We didn't have any kids. Uh, we were living outside of New York City. Seemed pretty good. We were playing golf every Sunday morning. <laughs> my life wasn't rock bottom. I easily was looking around my life saying, you know what, I really don't need anything more than this. I'm pretty good. But you know what I did have? A God-shaped hole in my heart that I could not fill with golf or possessions or a better job or even another relationship. I couldn't fill it. And it wasn't until I said, you know what? This thing that you're talking about, this relationship with Jesus Christ, I, I need that. I need that. And I surrendered, at least I surrendered that part of my life to him. And Jesus came and he lived in my heart and he filled the God-shaped hole. And so now I don't have to say I was almost persuaded. I was persuaded. And I got saved. Agrippa, he's almost persuaded, not saved. I mean, maybe, maybe you're there now. Maybe you're like saying, well, I've been coming for a while and I like what you're saying. You're kind of silly and your jokes are terrible. <laughs> and you're thinking, I'm almost persuaded. It's not good enough. You can't be almost persuaded. <laughs> I would pray that if you're here and you're saying, or if you're watching us online, wherever that camera is, <laughs> if you're watching us online and you're almost persuaded, you just please, please listen really carefully today to what the Holy Spirit is urging you. Not even my words. The Holy Spirit's going to step into your life and he's going to just press in so hard on you if you really let him so that you can be fully persuaded today. As we've been talking about this as a theme, today, last week, last Sunday, that was the day to get saved. But if you didn't do it, guess what? Today is the day to get saved. Today. Well, that's kind of where we left them. It says that after both of those guys went out, this is the very end of chapter 26. It says, when he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who were, sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves saying, this man has done nothing, is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. And then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. You know, it's so crazy that they go out after they have this little... Uh, trial of Paul, still they could find nothing to accuse him of, uh, or at least that he's guilty of. There's plenty of things that he was accused of. And they're off to the side now, and as they leave, and they're, they're walking out, and they're saying, you know what? I, there's still nothing that we can point to that he's guilty of. And Agrippa says, you know what? If he hadn't appealed to Caesar, we could have just let him go. And yet it says in verse, 20, uh, verse 1 of 27, and when it was decided that we, should all, that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. And so they still send him. They don't have any charges. They don't have anything to write to Caesar that he's guilty of, which is what his concern was, Festus in the last chapter. And yet they still send him. Isn't that crazy, really? Doesn't that seem a little bit crazy? Like, why didn't they just say, you're not guilty of anything. You're free, Paul. You are free to go. Just go. Why didn't they? Because there's something greater at work right here in this story. In fact, we know that God had already said to Paul, you're going to go to Rome. You must go to Rome, is what he had already told Paul. And so, God says, all right, even though he's not guilty of anything, and even though the, the governor knows it and king, the king knows it, he's still going to go. 
I'm not going to let them release him because he's going to go. In fact, he's going to go on your dime, Rome. It's an it's a expense-paid trip to Rome. I'll take that. Not this way, actually. Not the way we're going to read. I don't want to go the way Paul went. But in, on the onset, it is an ex, all-expense-paid trip to Rome for Paul to go and present his defense, which we know is the gospel for Paul, in front of Caesar Nero. Man, you can't stop God. You can't stop him. It doesn't matter. What might seem logical to you, they're like, well, it doesn't really seem logical to go ahead and send Paul. He hasn't done anything, but we're going to do it anyway. Because God is on the throne. And God says, Paul is going to Rome. And Rome, you're going to pay for it. So they go. Now see, Luke here, he's writing, he's with him. He says, so we should sail to Italy. And they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to Rome. So they have a gathering of prisoners. We don't know how many there are. You've got Paul, and it says, and some of the other prisoners. So clearly Paul is considered a prisoner as he's being sent to Rome. He's still in chains. Paul hasn't actually been condemned or convicted of anything. But these other people, these other prisoners, are probably on their way to Rome to face execution and likely in the arenas, gladiators and animals and each other. Because in Rome, this was a time right now where there were what they called games going on where they would, they would sacrifice prisoners in the arena for entertainment for the people who would come and see that's these other prisoners. Paul's counted among them, but he finds special favor, if, as we see, that he was delivered to a man named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. And so entering a ship of uh, Admiratium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Okay, we have a map. Maps appear. There they are. All right. Okay, so you can see where they are. They're going to show you. I don't have a pointer right now, so they're going to keep looking at the map. There it is. You can see that their trip went along the coast and then was going to go up and around. And what they meant to do was sail along the coastline until they got over here um, to Italy, you know, see Sicily, Syracuse, and then go up through in order to get to Rome. They intended to go along the coast. That was the safest way to go. But it doesn't work out that way. You can see the red line there shows that they took an alternate route. And we're going to see why they took an alternate route today. So Luke is with him. He's going to say also that Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with them as well. We met, we met if you remember, Aristarchus uh, in Ephesus when there was a big... Uh, Tumult, I guess, Paul, tumult, those words kind of go together. Uh, and Aristarchus was one of the guys that they dragged in. He has been with Paul ever since Ephesus. It says, on the next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. Now, that's kind of crazy, don't you think? I mean, there's Paul, one of the prisoners that's under the charge of Julius, and Julius says, you know what, Paul? Here we are in Sidon. Why don't you go ahead and go and visit your friends and just make sure to come back, if you don't mind. Come on back so that we can just head on off. Now, this is kind of crazy because any prisoner that was under the charge of some Roman guard, if they, if, if they ran away, then you were responsible for their life. In, in fact, you stood in their place and you were executed instead. And so this was kind of a big deal that he trusted Paul so much. He believed that he had enough integrity that he would come back that he said, go ahead Go on and visit your friends in Sidon. When we're ready to go, just come on back. And that's, I mean, I give Julius a lot of credit right there. I love that name, Julius. By the way, put that on your list if you're still of childbearing age. Julius. <laughs> and on the next day, oh, I said that. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. All right, another picture. We're gonna, I'm going to show you an idea of what the, this boat looked like. This is an Egyptian grain ship. Now, Rome didn't have any more room 
to grow the grain that they needed to make bread for the people. They gave them two things, really cruel, vicious games to watch and bread. And, and at the same time, really. So you could sit there with your bread and, and, and watch the games. And so they had to grow their grain somewhere else. And where they grew it was in Egypt. And so what happens is they would load up these ships. They would pay these uh, merchant ships large sums of money to fill up their holes with grain and then sail from Egypt to Italy. Okay? And this is the ship that they find. Now, they're about 140 feet long, which is maybe 40 or so feet longer than our entire space right here, and about 40 feet wide. There's no real cabin, okay? There's a hull underneath and then just space on top. There's one mast uh, right in the middle with one big forward-facing square sail and sometimes that little front sail. Didn't have a, a big like ship steering wheel. It had two rudders on either side, like you see in the picture, that would help steer the boat. That's the ship that they put them on. Now, we're going to find out later that this 140-foot-long, 40-foot-wide grain ship that's laid down with grain is also going to end up with 276 passengers and crew on that one little ship on its way to Rome. Okay, So just keep that in mind. Just leave it up, as a matter of fact, for now. That's the ship that they get put on. Now, it's not the best. If you were to pick a ship that you were going to sail uh, where you had the most control, you might pick a different design, one that has a sail that would swing around this way or that way so that you could tack with the wind if it wasn't against you. This is a simple forward-facing sail. You have to go in the direction that the wind is going. That's going to be important later. When, uh, verse 7 says, when we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Sidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete and Salmon. So you can see that they're already being affected by the fact that the, the wind isn't permitting them to go in the direction they want to go because they have a forward-facing sail. Well, passing, with great, passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lassia. So Fair Havens... That sounds nice. If you were going to go on a, a vacation and someone was like, go to Fair Havens, I'd be like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's go to Fair Havens. In, in, in Greek, the literal translation is ideal lakes. That still sounds good. Ideal lakes, yes. Do you want to go to the lake? Which one's ideal? Let's go to that one. That, that's where you'd go, Fair Havens. Now, the crazy part is there was nothing really there. If there was a town, it was like a little tiny couple of huts. There's nothing there. The, the, the wind in the wintertime would blow straight into that bay and would be bad for your ship. It would be constantly buffeted by the, the winter winds blowing in. And so it wasn't that great of a place. There was nothing there. There wasn't anything, certainly, for 276 men to do there. There was hardly any shelter at all. And there was winter winds constantly buffeting your ship. Who named this place? <laughs> Who named this place Fair Havens? <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe, maybe it was somebody that wanted to lure unsuspecting sailors into a harbor that wasn't safe. Lure them in by a, uh, a, a deceiving name. Uh, can you imagine, I mean, can you imagine a place that has a, a, a really good name but is a really bad place to go? Do you know what a gentleman's club is? <laughs> I, do you? Oh, my goodness. How do you know? If you don't know, a gentleman's club is just another name for a strip club. That's it. But it sounds like, yes, I'm going to go to a gentleman's club. I'm a gentleman. But you don't want to go there. That's a bad place. You do not want to go to a place. It's a place of destruction, just like Fair Havens. Fair Havens was not a safe port for them to be in. There were much better places for them to go. And yet this is where they end up, at least for right now. Fair Havens. They sail in to Fair Havens. <clears throat> I keep losing my place. Sorry. Uh, let's see. Now, when much time had been spent, now they didn't just pull in and pull out, by the way. See, they did spend some time here. They probably looked around and be like, oh, there's nothing here. <laughs> and that's, it's really windy. 
And sailing now was dangerous because the feast was already over. Look, really what that means right there where it says that it was dangerous to sail because the feast was over, not, it wasn't dangerous because the feast was over. That's an indication that it was getting almost to be winter. And in the winter, you did not sail in the Mediterranean Sea. It was impossible. That's what they said. If, you know, in the late fall, September, October, it was dangerous, but November, December, you didn't do it. Uh, and here they are, they're faced now with the time is running out. They've passed the feast time, which means that they're getting into like October and is getting into the time where they shouldn't be sailing. You know, Paul's going to say, hey, why don't we stay here in Fair Havens? Even though it wasn't a great port, even though there wasn't anything there, Paul's going to say, I'm not so sure it's a good idea for us to be going out into the Mediterranean during the wintertime. It's not safe. Now, Paul would know. I'm sure some of them would be like, you know, some of these sailors on the ship would look at him and say, oh, okay, okay, Paul, prisoner, preacher. Paul, by this time, had already sailed more than 3,000 miles. Some of that time, it says, I've already, Paul would say, been in two shipwrecks myself. And I spent a night and a day just floating in the water. So I have a little bit of experience with ships and shipwrecks. But uh, they don't listen to Paul. Uh, it says that, nevertheless, Paul says, uh, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Well, nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken of Paul. All right, I have to let you know that um, if a ship decided to sail in the wintertime and deliver its cargo of wheat, they got a bonus because the wheat still had to get to Rome. So if they sailed at that time, they got a bonus. And so the centurion's coming to the helmsman and the owner of the ship is saying, well, what do you guys think? And they're thinking, cha-ching, you know, if we make it, bonus for us. As we're going to see, that does not work out for them. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail. And there, if by any means we could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening toward the South Sea and Northwest, and winter there. And Phoenix from Fair Havens is not that far. If you put, uh, Gus, can you put the map back up? Uh, that's the third missionary journey, but here's, okay, you see where Phoenix is on the map right there? So they're in Fair Havens. All they're trying to do is get to Phoenix. It's, I think it's like a 35 miles. They just can't do it. You see, they, they, they shoot out for it, and then we're going to see what happens. It says, when the, when, verse 13, when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. So it's, the wind is blowing. It's, it's gentle breeze. It's blowing in the right direction. They're headed for Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. That sounds scary, <laughs> Euroclidon. See, even then, they were naming their storms, right? This is a big storm. It's actually, in Greek, it's a hurricane. That's what it says. It's a, hur a hurricane called East Surge. So as soon as they get out and they think they're on their way, this hurricane wind blows up on them. We're going to say that this is a, see, it's a serious storm that comes in, and it just smashes into to, uh, this boat, Euroclidon. So when the ship was caught, it says gripped. In, in Greek, it says gripped. So the, the hurricane was blowing. The ship is literally gripped by the storm and could not head out into the wind. We let her drive, or else it says it was carried along. And so the storm comes in. The storm blows in, and they are gripped by the storm and carried away. feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? Storm blows in to your life, and you're just gripped by it, and it's easy. You get carried away. In whatever direction that wind is blowing, you get carried away. I want you to think about that as we go through. I mean, there's a very natural parallel between the ship and what's going to happen to this ship um, and, and what God calls us to do with storms in our lives or, or our life being a ship. 
verse 16, in running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we, we secured the skiff with difficulty. Do you know what? I, there's 276 people on this boat. One lifeboat. One. <laughs> I mean, at least the Titanic had enough for half. They have one skiff, and they pull that thing in, it says, with great difficulty, because the storm is so bad. And when they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground uh, on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and were so driven. And so they're so afraid that they're going to be driven into a sandbar that they pull down the sail. They somehow get ropes underneath the boat. Uh, and tie it together so that it doesn't break apart. In fact, I read that because the hull is full of wheat, when wheat gets wet, it expands. And as the wheat would expand, it would pull the boards apart of the ship, and they would start to take on more water. So they wrap the ship with these ropes to make sure that the boards don't fall apart. Now, I just really want you to think about this as we start to talk through this, because it's easy to just read through the facts here and be like, okay, they're on a ship, there was a storm, blah, blah, blah. Think about being in a hurricane. I mean, think about how scary that is. I was completely boarded up during Irma. Everything was covered up. I was on the other side of the state in a building that was hurricane safe, watching cars in the parking lot do this. And it was scary. And I was safe. And they're on a boat in the water that they're having to tie up so that it doesn't break apart. And it's dark. And there's no sun, and there's no stars, and there's huge waves, and it's raining, and they're rocking back and forth. And this is a terrible, scary situation that they're finding. Just get there in your head. Imagine it in your head. <clears throat> when they had, uh, and because, in verse 18, and because we were ex- ex- exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day we lightened the ship. You know what lighten the ship means? They started throwing stuff overboard. We're too heavy. We got to get rid of So What can we get rid of here? And they just started chucking stuff overboard because now they're starting to think, man, we're going to run aground or something bad's going to happen. We gotta, we're desperate. Let's just start throwing stuff over. And on the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. All right, this is an indication of just how scared they are and how desperate they are because you know what the tackle is for on a boat? That's how you like raise the sails and put anchors out. And that's the, that's the, the pulleys and the ropes and the, the hooks that actually use to operate the ship. And they're so getting so desperate to save themselves in terms of weight and anything extra, they just start throwing over the things that they would use to control the boat with just at the chance that maybe they could be saved. They start throwing off all of this stuff. Now... When neither sun nor stars appear for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. They have no sails up. They've thrown off all of the stuff that they would use to put sails or to move the boat around or to steer or any of the things that you would use to control the boat. They're huddled together. It's dark. No sun, no stars. We're going to learn for 14 days. Huddled together, thinking there is no hope that we are going to be saved. I'm sure that somebody here has felt like they've been in this same place in their life where they've done everything they thought they could do in a storm that they found themselves in until they reach the very end of their rope and think, there's nothing else to do. All is lost. I'm adrift. I've got no direction. There's no sun. There's no stars. There's nothing to, be, to navigate by. I've got nothing. All hope of being saved is lost. But there is hope. There is hope. How many of you have been in that situation and have come out of it because you had hope in someone bigger than yourselves? Someone who actually the wind and the waves obey his very voice. Remember that story? Jesus is on the boat with his disciples and he's asleep in the back of the boat and a big storm comes up them on the Sea of Galilee and it starts to rock the boat and the waves are coming over and they're like, we're going to perish. And they started to lose hope, and they go back, and they wake up Jesus, and they say, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? 
Did you ever said that before? Don't you care that I'm in this situation, Lord? Well, in that story, Jesus gets up and he goes to the bow of the boat and he says, peace. Not like this. <laughs> but with authority. Amen. Peace. Be still. And it says, and the wind and the waves went like this. And you know what the disciples did? They were like, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey? It's the same Jesus, gang. The same Jesus then as there is now. And even if you're, if you're in a storm right now, it's the same Jesus who even the storm obeys. So one of the amazing things that we're going to see in this story is that God is still there. He's still with them. They're giving up all of hope. All, all the passengers, all the crew have given up hope. Paul's going to come in and he's going to say, what, I got a message from God. Well, let's get there. But after a long absence from food, yeah, no kidding, right? You ever been seasick? You ever been on a boat and you're just like, oh. And someone's like, man, this sandwich is so good. Here, let me give you some. And you're just like, oh, man, no, I can't. And I, I don't believe that they ran out of food. I believe that they're so sick after so many days of being tossed and afraid that they're just like, if I even look at food, I'm going, I'm going to hurl right over the side. Many days without food. And you know, if you don't have food, you get really, really weak. And it's even harder and harder to come back from that. But after a long absence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. Great, Paul. Way to encourage. You know, I'm sure that a bunch of them are thinking, I can think of something else we can throw over to lighten the ship right now. And Paul comes up and he says, should have listened. I told you so. I told you so. We shouldn't have left Fair Havens. Paul. But he says, uh, and now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. So it's kind of a good news, bad news, right? Hey, good news, we're all going to make it. Bad news, not the ship, though. The ship's going to break apart. We're going to lose the ship. So the prisoners are maybe thinking, all right. The guy that owns the ship thinking, hmm, all right. Um, I'm glad I'm not going to die, but this is my livelihood. It's all going to go. Not so great news, but still good news. Don't be afraid. Uh, he says, for, for there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Do you see what Paul says? He says, last night, an angel of God whom, to whom I belong came to me, whom I serve, he says. That's incredible. Paul says, I belong to God. Do you? Do you look at it like that? Do you look at your life like, I gave my life to Jesus. I, I gave it to him. He actually, he purchased me, didn't he? He purchased you. He died on the cross. He paid the price that you owed in fact, he even said at the end of his life, Tetelestai, paid in full. He paid for you. I belong to him. I don't have any belongings of my own that push back against me like I do against God. I know I belong to him. But you know what? I still sometimes say, but, but. Uh, but this one's, this is mine, or that's mine. Or, you know, we actually, in our practical Christian living class, we talked about the throne of your life. And uh, if you picture, like, there's a throne, and most of the time, we're on it. And then we invite Jesus to come into our lives, and we step aside, and we say, here, take, take the throne of my life. You, you, I, I belong to you. And, and we kneel down next to him. Then after a little while, we're just like, <sighs> he's still on the throne. 
And then you're just like, there's a little space for me, right? Jesus, there's a little space. And pretty soon you're, you're edging away. And, and, you know, he's a gentleman. Jesus is a gentleman. He'll be like, all right, all right. And pretty soon he's over here. And you're right on the throne again. Right on the throne again. And sometimes it takes something like this right now for me to say, have you just inched Jesus right off of your throne? Examine your life. Examine it to see if you are in the throne of your life. If you said, well, you know, I, it's more of like a pawn shop relationship that I have. I mean, I, 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 I gave my life to him, but it's still mine. And, or is it his? Is your life his? Paul would say, I belong to him. I go where he tells me to go. I do what he tells me to do. I say what he tells me to say. Now, Paul will say, I haven't attained perfection. I sometimes do things I'm not supposed to do, and I don't do the things that I know I'm supposed to do. I'm wretched just like everybody else, but he had a mindset that said, I belong to God. And because I belong to him, what do I do? Paul said, I serve him. I serve him. It's heavy, man. I also wonder, like, how did that conversation go? I mean, Paul's there. I, I don't know where he was on the ship, where he found some quiet place where an angel could appear to him and nobody else noticed in the dark. But there's Paul, and an angel of the Lord comes to him and appears to him. And I wonder what happened. I wonder if that angel came up and said, you know what, Paul? Don't be afraid, because God said that you must go to Rome. And I know Paul, and I know his heart, because we've you know, just spent a year pretty much talking about Paul, if I know Paul, I think Paul would say, that's amazing. What about Luke? And I think the angel would say, okay, Luke too. And he would say, what about Aristarchus? Could, could, could God save Aristarchus too? And the angel would say, of course. What about the other prisoners? What about those other prisoners? How about those? Can we save those too? What about the captain and the helmsman? What about Julius? And the angel says, okay, all of them, all of them are spared. And so I just look at that and I think, man, that is so like Paul to say, okay, thank you for saving me. Now, how about everybody I am surrounded by? How about everybody around me? And, you know, oftentimes we say, well, I'm like Paul. It's usually when we read something like him standing up and saying, I told you so, because we look at Paul and say, well, Paul, this great guy, but he was kind of fleshy, and so it's okay. I'm like Paul because I'm kind of fleshy sometimes too. But when you say, I'm like Paul, are you saying, I'm like Paul who, who spends time praying in intercession for the lives of those people around you? Are you sitting there saying, yes, I, I'm saved, but what about my mom? My brother, my cousin, my neighbors. What about those people? And are you pleading for their lives too? Because if you are, then you are like Paul. But if you're not, then you're not. What's your prayer life like? You have a selfish prayer life? When you sit down and pray like, Lord... Thank you for this food. <laughs> Amen. Let's eat. And if that's your prayer life, we ought to seriously talk. But if your prayer life is like, Lord, here's my list of things that I need you to do in my life, and that's your first thing, then you're not like Paul. I believe Paul would say, Lord, here. Uh, I, I, actually, I believe Paul would say, Lord, you're amazing. No one greater than you. You are the creator of the universe. Lord, thank you for saving me. Let me, let me acclaim. Let me praise you. Let me thank you. Lord, let me confess so that I'm clean before you in my prayers. Now, Lord, let me bring my supplications before you for others. And then me. I, I honestly do believe, and I can't show you here in Scripture, but I honestly do believe that some version of that happened between Paul and this angel who he said, what about all these other men? And the angel, the messenger of God said, yes, all of them will be spared, Paul. All of them. However, verse 26, we must run aground on a certain island. That word is shipwrecked. We must be shipwrecked, abandoned. 
And it's actually a pretty cool picture because what Paul is saying is this ship that we're on, the thing that's loaded down with grain still, by the way, um, you, you'll see that they were so desperate to throw away everything except their cargo, which was where their money was. They haven't thrown that away yet. So wrapped up in what they had, even in the midst of a storm, they weren't quite ready to abandon. And Paul says, you're all going to be saved if you're ready to abandon all of this. <laughs> well, see, that's the message that God says, isn't he? He's like, all of what you've got going on in your life, everything that you think you have, all your possessions, all the things that you think you're filling yourself, everything that you think is of value, you need to abandon that, and then you can be saved. Because until you do that, that's what you care about. Right? And Paul says very clearly to them and very clearly to us, that's what you have to abandon, and you can be saved. That's pretty cool. Now, I could see that the helmsman and the owner of the ship would have trouble with this. I could see that, but see what God does. He doesn't really give them a choice. <laughs> he says, I'm going to take you to a place where this isn't a hard decision. It's not a hard decision to make. And some of you in your life probably had a, a similar situation. Some of you easily came to an acceptance of Jesus Christ, but some of you were just holding on and holding on until God's like, I'm going to bring you to the point where the decision is very easy, but it's going to be painful to get there. It's going to feel like loss until you let it go. Because you think that these guys who thought that they were going to die on the ship, when they dragged themselves up on shore and they're still alive, were probably praising God in some form at least, even though they had lost everything that they had of value. And it's the same. You could be wrapped up in everything that I have, all my possessions, everything I own, get to the point where I was like, no, I need to be saved. And you abandon it all, and there's a great joy that comes over you. Not a feeling of loss, but an incredible sense of gain. Now, in verse 27, now, when the 14th night had come and we were driven up and down the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors sensed that we were drawing near some land, and they took some soundings and found that it was 20 fathoms. And when we had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found that it was 15 fathoms. A fathom is six feet. Just so you know, if you're not a nautical person and you don't know what a fathom is, they were at 120 feet. They went a little farther, and then they were at 90 feet. So you can see, they're like, we're getting close to some kind of land here. You know, the water's getting shallower. Then, 29, fearing <clears throat> lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. That's actually pretty smart. They dropped four big anchors off the back to drag along the bottom to slow their slow their roll towards the island. And then it says, and they prayed for day to come. But that's not what it says in Greek. It says they wished that the day would come. They wished that the day would come because they don't know what to do. Well, we're going to do everything we know how to do, and then we're just going to cross our fingers. <sighs> I, I, I'm so glad that I know that I serve a God, I belong to a God that has everything in control, so I don't have to sit there with my fingers crossed saying, I hope this works out. Because I know that God has got a plan. I, it may not always go the way that I think it should go. In fact, it, it often doesn't. And at the end, on the other side of that, I'm usually pretty happy that it went the way God wanted it rather than the way I thought it should go. Because the Bible reminds me in Isaiah that the way that I would do things is not the way that God does things. In fact, it says that God's ways are so much higher than my ways. It's like he's saying, my ways are like way up here and your ways are like way down here. The Bible also says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but ultimately it leads to death. <laughs> I'll take God's way. I'll take God's way. As hard as it is sometimes. Hey, look, I want to point something else to you. Paul says, I belong to God. I am God's possession. I serve God. I belong to God. But where is Paul right now? 
It's in the middle of a hurricane on a boat that's breaking apart. When you are a possession of the Lord, when you belong to God, it doesn't mean that there aren't storms still in your life, right? If anybody ever tells you, once you become uh, born again, everything is smooth sailing, it's, and, if, if, and if it's not smooth and good all the time, then there's something wrong with your faith. That is such BS. See, Paul, would anybody here say that Paul didn't belong to God? He said it himself, or Paul is a servant of God, a precious, uh, God would say, a peculiar treasure. And some of you, that's more true than others, the peculiar part. <laughs> it doesn't mean that we aren't going to still have storms. But here's the difference. God is with Paul in the storm. God is with you in the storm, not just in, through the storm. Oh, thank you, Jesus. All right, there's still going to be storms, but we can know that Jesus goes with us through the storm. Somebody once said, he didn't remove the Red Sea, he just parted it and made a way for them to go through. The Red Sea was still there. It was still scary on either side, whales and things swimming around. <laughs> <laughs> so they're getting close. And so it says, then the 30 of the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship when they let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors on the prow. And so the sailors on the ship, they're like, guys, come on, let's pretend like we're going to drop an anchor. We're going to get out of here, get on the lifeboat. And they're trying to lower the skiff down and, and run. And Paul sees it, says, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall. Does that not seem a little drastic? Does that seem a little drastic? Couldn't they just say, hey, you sailors, get back here and pull the skiff back up and then maybe save the lifeboat in case they need it later? No, it was drastic. They cut the ropes away and off sailed the skiff. Drastic action is often required in your life. The Bible says that if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better to go into heaven than let your eye cause you to go into hell. That's a paraphrase, but that's what it says. That's drastic. That is drastic measure. And sometimes and often drastic measure is required in your life. They cut the ropes and let the lifeboat go. That's drastic Measure. What drastic measures do you need to take in your life? What have you got going on? If you don't know what it is that you've got going on in your life that you should cut away, then ask the Lord to say, would you please reveal to me what it is that I need to cut away and let go in my life so that I am not hindered by it? If they had a lifeboat on the boat, they could have said, well, this God that Paul talks about might save us, but if he doesn't, we still got the boat. I've still got plan B. Plan B over here. It wasn't until they cut that plan B away. All they've got is Paul's plan. That's all they got. But it's the best plan, isn't it? Is that the best plan? You want God or a lifeboat? And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day, and you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from your head of any of you. <laughs> I've already lost too many. Then they were all encouraged. Oh, and he took these things, and he took bread, and he gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them. And when he had broken the bread, he began to eat, and they were all encouraged. You see what Paul does? It's still storming, still storms, still dark, no stars, no sun. Paul takes out bread, and in the presence of all of them, he says, thank you to God. Thank you to God in the storm. And it impacts them so much that it says that they were all encouraged. There was something about Paul sitting there and saying, even in the midst of the storm, the struggle that I'm in, I'm still going to thank God. And it encourages those around them. You know, last week we talked about this whole idea of Paul calling any believer a saint. Remember that? 
And, and we, we kind of went through uh, a little bit of the confusion where the Catholic Church has a kind of a process for how to become a saint in the Catholic Church. But one of the steps is, and the very first step, is that they examine the life who is the person that is proposed sainthood, and they see, does that person live, did they live a virtuous life or a life that inspired others to seek after God? And after we talked about that last week, God kind of got a hold of me. And he said, well, okay, if you all are saints because you're all followers of Jesus, if we were to examine your life, are you living a life of virtue, a life that inspires others to follow after and to seek God? I mean, it still kind of applies, doesn't it? The, the, what the Catholic Church does applies kind of because you are supposed to examine your life. Paul, in the midst of a storm, is thanking God. Are you able to do that so that those in, around you, as they were on the ship, would look at your life and say, what? What? You're thanking God? Does it occur to you that God could have stopped the storm? Does it occur to you that God could have been like, peace, be still, and calm the storm? Why didn't he? Why didn't he stop the storm? Well, first of all, look at all the amazing things that are happening right here. If he had stopped the storm before this, or if he'd even prevented it, they would have sailed right on through. None of these 276, 275, 43, 273 people would have been affected in the way they're being affected right now. But here, it got, uh, Paul's devotion to a God that is greater than anything else they know is impacting their lives in a way that's profound, that would not have happened had God stopped the storm. You know, don't think that the storms in your life are just there to hurt you or buffet you. God is doing something. There's a little handwritten sign back in the family ministry center that says, when you are down to nothing, God is up to something. I love that. It's a great reminder that when I'm down to nothing, when I got nothing left, God is up to something. God, is God in the storm? Sure. Is he just in the storm? No, he's doing something. And they were all encouraged, it says. And, and in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and they threw the wheat, threw out the wheat into the sea. Well, finally, finally. I mean, I guess they weren't that desperate. They've been holding on to the wheat, but now they throw all of their hopes of any payment into the sea for the sake of their saving their lives. And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go of the anchors, left them in the sea, meanwhile loosing the rudder ropes and hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas meet, they ran the ship aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. Now it gets even scarier, because now they're making for land. They're like, there's a beach, let's go. Well, on the way there, they run into like a, a, a sandbar coral reef kind of a thing, and the bow of the boat gets jammed in there. The back of the boat, that's the stern, again, in case you're not nautical, um, is being smashed by the waves because you've got water seas that are meeting and they're coming in and they're just starting to break apart the boat. And, and now it's scary. I mean, it wasn't scary before. Now the boat literally is breaking up as you're standing on it. <clears throat> but striking a place where two seas meet, we read that, verse 42, and the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away. Remember, if they lose any of the prisoners, they're on the hook for us. So they're like, you know what? Instead of having to kind of corral all these prisoners, let's just kill them. They're all on their way to their death anyway. Let's just kill them anyway. You know, does that strike you? That these are condemned men who are going to die? Look at the length that God goes so that they could be witness to the gospel. Now, they're gonna, we're going to find in the last chapter that they end up staying on Malta with Paul, who I know for three months had lots of opportunities to talk about Jesus. Look at the lengths that God goes to. These are condemned men. M maybe they were guilty of really bad things. Maybe they were just guilty of being Christians because that was going on as well. 
But God says, even the worst offender has the opportunity to receive the gospel and be cleaned and saved. And God says, and I will go through great measure. Now, I bet Paul thought this was all for his sake. Or maybe, maybe Luke thought that it was all for his sake. Uh, was it for Luke? Yeah. Was it for Paul? Yeah. Was it for Aristarchus? Yes. Was it for the captain? Yes. For the prisoners? Yes. For the crew? For Julius? Yes. Because that's how God works. God works in every direction all at the same time. And we have trouble with that because we live our lives like this. Everything, I'm linear and everything happens to me. And maybe if you come in, you intersect my life. And we don't understand that God works from every direction all the time. But the centurion, that's Julius, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. I underline that. All, all escaped safely to land, just exactly as God had promised exactly as God had promised. You know, in Luke's gospel, which he wrote before he wrote down this, but maybe he wrote it in Luke after experiencing this, he writes that there is nothing impossible for God. Now, either he was looking back and saying, we were all going to die. I mean, that ship was breaking apart, and even the soldiers were going to kill us before we escaped, but nothing is impossible for God. And you look at your life and say, yeah, but he doesn't know what's going on here, or he doesn't know my situation here, or there's just no way that this could work out. I mean, God is God, but I need $100,000 by the end of the month. (laughs) That's a lot, actually. But is that impossible for God to provide? No. Next week, we're going to see Paul lands on Malta. I'm struck by the fact that had this storm never come up, had Paul never been arrested, had Paul never appealed to Caesar, he never would have gone to the island of Malta. We're going to look at the impact that he has on the Maltese people and the the Roman colonists who are there. And I'm struck by the fact that the, the, the detour that God takes Paul on the things that we just saw take place in the lives of the people who are on this ship, all of this, because God had a plan for all of these people that Paul couldn't see, that we certainly wouldn't have been able to see, and, and why would it be different for any of us? Maybe God has something incredible planned for you tomorrow that you can't see or even imagine right now, but, and you might miss it if you're not surrendered. Do you see this part where Paul says, after he gets this message, he says, you know what? God said that everyone's going to be spared. Everyone. I believe God, he says. So the God who I serve, I believe God. There's a difference. He didn't say, I believe in God, right? He didn't say, I believe in God. He said, I believe God. There's a difference because when you say, I believe God, that means I'm surrendering to God's authority, Rather than say, I believe in God. Yeah, there's a God. I believe in him. James would say, good for you. You believe in God, good for you. So do the demons. And they tremble. But they haven't surrendered. It comes down to that, gang, right? Have you surrendered to God? Have you surrendered all to God? I tell you what. Whatever it is you have is surrendered is like a handle that sticks off of your body that the devil gets a hold of and starts to steer you and pull you this way and that way. If you feel like you're struggling with something in your life, it's because you haven't surrendered it to Jesus. Surrender all. With the youth, we're going through a series called 100%. Can you guess what that means? Give 100% of yourself to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for, well, so much. We could be here all day and into the night and tomorrow just saying thank you for all that you've done and what you've provided. Lord, you've saved us. Lord, I I, I thank you for the storms in my life because they always show me something. They always teach me something. 
And it, it, maybe it's just that I need to remember to rely on you. Lord, I pray that I do strive to live a life of, of virtue that is an inspiration to those around me that they might look into my life and say, there's something different about that guy. Even in a storm, he seems to be thanking and praising God. Lord, help me to remember that in those storms. Lord, I pray for anybody here that's trying to hold a ship together that's fallen apart with no rudder, tied together, being buffeted from the left and the right, Lord, I pray that they would allow that ship to be shipwrecked, abandoned, so they might be saved. I thank you, Lord, for your provision. I thank you, Lord, for making a way for me to be saved. Lord, right now I'm praying for those that I know that are lost, that are perishing. Lord, would you, would you break into their lives in a way that's so powerful that they would have no other choice but to turn to you? Use me, Lord, in their lives and in any way that you want. Let me be a tool in your hand. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.